0: Welcome back to Bodies in the Bayous. I'm Morgan. And I'm Gretchen. This is season three, Back to the Killing Fields. This season, we are revisiting the Texas Killing Fields. In the following episodes, we will cover a broader area. This is in an effort to connect some of the cases covered in season one. We plan to bring to you some of the known serial killers in this broader area that may have murdered some of the women in the Texas Killing Fields, we will also cover some of the victims that we did not cover in season one. Season three, back to the Texas Killing Fields, episode ten, the Donut Shop Murders. So, on our last episode, we gave you kind of the
1: background of the McCrary's family, McCrary's, McCrary's family, and um, and we brought you. What turns out to be the first donut shop murder, which was Sherry Martin. And in this, the rest of this episode, we want to talk about the other victims. So on August 20th, 1971, Leora Looney was a 22 year old woman who lived with her family in Thornton, Colorado. She lived with her parents, Virgil and Lucille, as well as three siblings. So. That, August 20th, 1971, was seven days after the abduction of Sherry Martin. On Friday, Lenora Rose Looney disappeared around 10.20 p.m. from Mr. Donut, where she worked the night shift in Lakewood, Colorado. So, for people who are not familiar with Colorado, Lakewood and Thornton, Golden, all of those areas are basically suburbs of Denver. So it wouldn't have been unusual to go from Thornton to working into Lakewood. They're right next to each other. Um, so when when customers came into the donut shop, they actually noticed that, one, nobody was there. But um, when the police came, they noticed that the belongings belonged to... Uh, Leora, were still at the shop. It appeared to be that the shop was robbed and that she had been taken during the robbery. About $90 was taken from the register. Three days later, on Monday, her nude body was found at the Lazy D Ranch in a north... in northeast Colorado. So the Lazy D Ranch actually sits in Colorado on the Wyoming border. So... There's some confusion of whether or not she was found in Colorado or Wyoming, but it's right there on the Wyoming border. She had been strangled and shot in the back and twice in her body. It was later confirmed that um that it was uh, leora since she was quite a few distance away it did take the police a little while to kind of figure out who she was um police right away, and I think um connect this to the utah homicide of sherry at that point sherry's still missing but they relatively
0: quickly connect this to that um why like um, they're connecting it because a robbery like the similarities the similarities
1: of a donut shop a young woman taken um while it's being robbed um so they Pretty quickly are like, okay, well, maybe possibly donut shops and young waitresses working at night are, you know, being targeted, even though. I mean, it makes
0: you wonder, too, because like a donut shop may not be that busy at night. You know, so it might just be the opportunity of. You know, not having as many people around, too. Yeah, I actually wonder
1: how busy the donut shop would have been at night this she may have been more employed to kind of get things ready for the next morning, mm-hmm. even though the donut shop is open. But, um
0: cause here, you know, they close at like noon. Right. There know. are a lot of donuts. <laughs>
1: um, But there are a lot of donuts. We're in Texas. There are a lot of donut shops in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um It's not as big of thing in Colorado. So that's where I'm from. You know, you don't have here, you have a
0: donut shop, every mile. Yeah. <laughs> so would it be more or less like, you know, hey, let's go get a donut. Like, you know, let's go do something. Let's go get donuts cuz it would be a like rarity maybe. Y- you know what I mean? Maybe
1: um to me during this time period I was thinking that they were more like bakeries for us. Yeah. Oh um, yeah. Like it does say Mr. Donut, but like a lot of times in um, in Colorado, you would have more like little mom and pop bakeries where you would have donuts and then cupcakes and other things, and so they would stay later at night because you would have those other treats. Where in Texas here, you're just kind of associated with the donuts, well and you know? calzones, yeah, well, <laughs> lots of kolaches. Um, but you know, being back in that time period, I don't really know. I mean, yeah. we're talking so long ago. Um. I was trying to think, you know, where this was located. Um, so if she's located co- close to I-70, whether or not you would have had a large amount of traffic in that area. And so people would have been getting on and off at all hours of the night. You'd have truck drivers coming through and stuff. But I didn't find an address. So I'm not a, oh, really sure how busy the donut shop would have been at night. Mm-hmm. Um, not busy enough that there were more than one person working though.
0: So, yeah, I just guess too, like during that time, people weren't as fearful, like you would never have two people on. I mean, you you know, you would never yeah. be singly working, you'd always have at least two people on because of things like this, you know, the possibility. I, I would think so. I mean, I would think that some of some of our added security has come from
1: things like mm-hmm. this. Yeah. So then the next one is in September of 1971, Elizabeth Stuffens, whom her family and friends called Betty Jo. She was a beautiful girl with dark hair and alabaster skin. She married young at 17 years old and had her first child, Tonetta. The marriage did not last long after the birth of her daughter. Elizabeth then did marry again shortly after this, but that marriage also ended in divorce. And then, so now for a third time, she met um, Van Perryman, whom she had two more children with, Regina and Bobby. Regina was born in July of 1971, and Betty Jo worked for a coffee shop named Toodle's Coffee House as a waitress. This cafe was near Texas Tech University, and it was an all-night diner. Um, In order to make money to attend college classes, she was working there. On September of 1971, she called her husband, Van, at work around 9.20 p.m. to ask him to pick her up. He arrived around 10 p.m. and the place was locked up. He could not find his wife anywhere. The next morning, it was found that $86 were missing from the cash register drawer. The floor was possibly, um, was partly mopped. It wasn't until her remains were found outside of Amarillo on December 19th, 1971, and it was determined that she had been shot in the head. So this is one of those, though, where there's definitely some early speculation on what kind of happens here. So Van is looked at as a suspect in this case um and also she's looked at for a short period of time as possibly being a runaway yeah well yeah runaway wife you know somebody who got overwhelmed um and so you know this is one of those cases where they're like maybe she just took the 86 and and left i know 86 dollars was more than what it is today but I don't find that people walk away with just hey maybe you know I'll take one hundred and twenty dollars out of the cash register and I'll just start over somewhere else. But it was looked at as a possibility, right? And then in February of nineteen seventy-two, Cynthia Ann Glass of Portland, Oregon, age twenty-five, was kidnapped. She was found near wooden near Woodland, Washington. The same gun that killed Cynthia was also used to kill the conveys. So we'll talk about them a little bit later on. But just to give you an idea of how some of these cases connect up, um, because Portland, Oregon, I mean, these cases go back and forth. So you have them in in Portland, Oregon, in Texas, um, in lots of different places in you start to wonder how exactly did they figure out that these were connected? Because again, we're getting a little bit farther out of donut shops. And as far as Cynthia goes, I don't know exactly where she was kidnapped from. I don't, uh, unfortunately so much information has kind of gone missing on some of these. I know that uh, Barbara Joanne Mormon H 22 of Irving, Texas, which is near Dallas, was kidnapped from a grocery store. But again, I don't have much information on that either. And then um, a woman named Bobby Jean English, age 18, from Texas, is connected with these cases. But in all the digging that I could do, sadly, I couldn't find anything about Bobby either and where exactly she goes missing from. But then the next case is the case on November 30th, 1971. Bobby Turner, age 36, um, and Pat Marr, age 22, were petitions working at Nell's Style Salon in Melrose, Florida. Both were found murdered inside the shop on November 30th, 1971. The The women were shot with two different calibers of guns a 25 caliber, and then what was described at the time as being a larger caliber gun. Um, The women in the shop were found partially nude. And then you did the research on this when it was said that they were partially nude. Did you ever find out if they had been sexually
0: assaulted or they just never released it? So that was not released. I don't think at the time of their murder Uh until um, a little bit later when Bobby's daughter was found i think is when they release even more so with especially with the other caliber um gun mm-hmm. so
1: at first it looked like police had just these two murders on their hands but then they get a missing persons report for bobby's daughter 16 year old valerie turner and so police are trying to kind of figure out what has happened there because um valerie is reported missing by her fiance right Um, and her fiance basically says Valerie had, was dropping her mother off at at the shop that day for work. And then Valerie hadn't been heard from. So then witnesses kind of start to come forward, right? So you get a witness who comes forward and says the night before they had seen, uh, Bobby Turner, she had been talking to two men outside
0: the shop. Those men were described to be in their early thirties. Mm-hmm. You know what was kind of weird about that too. It's like if you're outside talking um to somebody right right, you have to be out there talking to them for quite a while for people to notice that. You know what I mean it uh-huh. wouldn't just be like a quick uh oh no, we don't do men's hair here or anything like that like it had to be an extensive conversation of something for them to notice, like, behavior, because they describe them as being strange men. I mean, there's no detail given on that that I could find, you know, but... Just the whole thing about them being strange. Mm -hmm. Um, Because if we were outside at work talking to somebody, I don't know if that would have come across as being strange.
1: No, I don't know if, you know... Yeah, you kind of... I mean, unfortunately, they didn't release that mm-hmm. but there had to be something there and you know you kind of wonder about this because so this seems to be the night before so maybe it's her reaction to them
0: body language yeah
1: body language that she has that they're like the way that i you know the way that i saw her talking would have been maybe that she think. was guarded yeah, or
0: something like that, right?
1: So, but then this sounds like, if you think about it, so she's outside talking to these strange men the night before their bodies are found. But then the next day, Valerie drops her mom off at the shop. So she was either dead inside the shop when Valerie drops um, her mom off, or or is this? This is mm-hmm. Valerie's mom who's out there mm-hmm. talking to him. Mm-hmm. So, so this is strange. So they were held up in that shop for a period of time or?
0: I wouldn't think so, because to me, if you're saying that the daughters dropped their back off at work, which is what we're reading in the in the articles, right? Then they've gone home for the night.
1: OK, so right? then so because then the next she's 40- seen
0: talking to the strange man the night before. OK, right. And then the next day is getting dropped off. By the daughter and, and not it. so it's almost like they were casing that job. Mm-hmm. You know, like they had kind of approached her to see what was going on. Mm-hmm. And and maybe the strange behavior could have been her just simply shutting them down where they were gonna do this heinous crime that night. Right. Because they typically do it at night, right? Yeah. So well, so I think in the other cases we have
1: um information that they did actually case case places. Mm-hmm. So, so it's a possibility that, you know, they, they were kind of checking it out. And if you think about, like, the daughter's dropping her mom off at work, she's probably picking her up from work, too. So if she was outside talking to these two strange men and Valerie drives up and they see her, they may have kind of put their targets on her at that point because now they've seen a young woman who seems
0: to be what they're interested in and we don't know like how late at night it was either but we know like salons can typically get a little bit busy after work too so you know it's possible that their intentions were to do something that night but there was too many people too many people around you know because they may not have been able to control that many people Mm -hmm. i don't know i mean that's just talking through the conversation but you know um something had to be something had to yeah almost like red flag something
1: and then you have the truck driver who came forward a couple of days later and said he witnessed two men also in their early 30s who escorted a teenage girl outside the salon at 8:55 55 in the morning
0: yeah and you know i i put a lot of emphasis on that time because he was in that parking lot um doing his trip log okay right and so if you're filling out your trip log you're you know what time it is because you're looking at your watch and thinking okay whether it's five hours ago it was here or i have stopped here or i took a break whatever it is because you know they're very strict on those things yeah regulated so i i take a lot of that into consideration that he's probably right about the time and it sounds to me like he's done this before they've even opened for the day
1: yeah so i mean if I think he, they did. And Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think it would be strange that Valerie would drop her mom off, maybe go into the shop, say hi to Pat, and then be like, maybe head back out and go to work. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's when these two men before the shop gets open come in and and confront
0: them well and there's one thing that I can tell you too because I was friends with somebody who was a beautician for a, a long time it was not uncommon for them to actually go into work early and like curl their hair do their hair the you know for the day Okay. Right. And so she could have possibly been like, Hey mom, let me use your curler. I mean, there could be a multiple reasons why she was in there, but it's not uncommon for her to be like, Oh, let me use the makeup mirror or whatever. Oh, right. Know? I so- mean, because she set it to work mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Or school,
1: I think. Okay. So she's set it to school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you can, you can see why she would be there early in the morning, mm-hmm. kind of get ready or some
0: hairspray or, I yeah. mean, there something's made her go inside. Right. Yeah. And, um, and so she's,
1: but she's missing at that point, so they don't have any idea where she is. They had a suspect early on, a man named Charles Parker, who was arrested for another crime nearby, and so they started to look at him. But as far as we could find, that wasn't a violent crime, and so they ruled him out relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. And then they also suspect um, had a suspect because Valerie was young and she was engaged to be married. Um, Michael Jackson was also a suspect for a period of time. Valerie's body was found on June twenty fifth, nineteen seventy two, by two young boys. The initial identification of her body was done by the engagement ring that she was wearing, mm-hmm. and then later by dental records. So, I mean, the- and,
0: it, and it, when they did discover the body, they were pretty sure at the discovery that it was going to be Valerie. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Well, they probably didn't have that many missing people around that same age.
1: um and at that point, they come up out with the fact that Valerie had been shot with a thirty eight caliber gun, and that that was also used to shoot one of the other women in the um shop. and these women were shot multiple times. It wasn't just one shot, so it they were shot several different times right. Um, so again, this is one of those cases where we're pretty sure that you know um the ruling out of of michael jackson and possibly even the ruling out of charles parker only actually came when ballistically they matched these guns to the mccury clan mm-hmm. so so And then on March second, nineteen seventy one, you have Jake Green, who is a janitor, and Mabel Mal- Manley, who is a bartender. Uh, Jake is sixty nine years old, and Mabel is sixty eight years old. They disappeared where they worked from a bar in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, again, I mean these these two certainly. This gets a lot older, but this puts them then up in the. Um, Kansas to the Kansas City, um, I mean Kansas area and the Missouri area. Um, I mean they were definitely nomadic.
0: Oh yeah, I mean they were all over the place.
1: Well, and at first when I started doing research on them, I thought they were pretty much like California, Texas, and they had gone up into Colorado and stuff like that. But you know when you have them out Florida and all sorts of area, really you wonder kind of what else they're responsible for. Mm-hmm. So, um, Joanne Leatherby, newspapers at the time linked Joanne's abduction to the murders and to the McCuries. But now there are message boards and articles devoted that her family has pleaded for answers. Joanne was 18 years old in August of 1971, living in Salt Lake City. She did not return home one night. Her family went out looking for her, and they found her car, a Chrysler, on Westminster Avenue. It was near where she had been hanging out in a field with friends. The day after her car was found, two men fishing in a Um, in a drainage canal spotted her body. It was bullet ridden, stabbed, and police said that she had been raped. Her case seemed to also be linked to another case in the area. Okay, so this one's kind of a, a head scratcher for me. So early on, you get newspaper articles that absolutely say that she is one of these victims. But then when I started combing through like message boards and... um kind of some Facebook pages and stuff. Her case apparently is still left open. Now for them to be up in Salt Lake, that would not have been unusual. Certainly the timing, August of 1971, we know that they are in the Utah area, but there are some, some odd things here with this. She's out with friends and they're all kind of partying a field, which this to me is not very unusual because yeah. I also kind of grew up in a fa- in a small town. So sometimes we partied in what people would refer to as a field. We had yeah. names for
0: them. Well, yeah, you have names for them, but you're definitely on like a back road and you're yeah. literally pulling into a field. So <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. And so it's like when you see the fire, turn there. Exactly. <laughs> so um,
1: but at the same time. It does seem like, so she is shot, but my guess is over the years, she, her, she has not been ballistically linked to any of the guns that they had. And so for me, I'm starting to think that maybe her case needs better examination, but early on, they were definitely putting this as a as a possibility.
0: Well, I, well and we know that even in the case here in Texas City that we covered in season one, uh-huh. they were definitely looking into them on one of those cases as well. But they knew ballistically they right. didn't connect. Right? right. But they knew that was going on. Uh-huh. So... I can understand why they would think it's possible. Yeah. But I think probably it's not. Yeah.
1: So, although, in defense of that, though, you know, they were known to send Danny, the younger child, well, I guess he was a child or young adult, into situations to kind of case places and to look at things. So you can see how he could be hanging out with other teenagers, maybe convinced her to leave the party with him. Maybe,
0: I mean, I get it. <laughs> I mean, that seems like a stretch to me because I just don't know how socially adapt he could possibly be to, like, pull that off. I don't know. He was socially adapt enough that nobody knew he was murdering people for the longest time. <laughs> well, that, but that's something that you're going to hold secret to your heart, like, as deep down as you can, right? But could you emotionally or whatever be able to... I oh, don't know. Yeah, I I get what you're saying. You know, uh,
1: so then on October seventeenth, nineteen seventy one, Jenna Convoy and Forrest Convoy, a nineteen year old grocery store clerk along with her husband, Forrest, who was twenty two, uh, went missing from the grocery store. Now this is an interesting thing about the grocery store because the grocery store was actually a drive up or a drive in grocery store that I've never heard of hmm so um no i can't say i've ever heard of that either you know i'm thinking more like maybe drive up kind of like convenient type but they refer to it as grocery store but maybe it was more like a drive up convenience store but anyway so jenna's kind of the manager who works there and forrest was visiting her that night and then they go missing their bodies are actually found um, on October seventy, October twenty fourth, nineteen seventy one, in a barn near Quinlan, Texas, they had both been shot uh, several times too. So, at this point, they've matched a bunch of cases to this family in in a lot of of different areas. Um, so you have Florida um missouri um utah Utah and uh colorado Colorado. And and that's they they are serving time in california for the uh grocery store robberies that we talked about in the last episode and then also for uh shooting a police officer during those robberies so at this point it almost becomes like a um war between the states who's gonna who's gonna get who so carl taylor and sherman mccrary were indicted for murder and the abduction of leora in colorado sherman's wife carolyn who was 45 years old at the time so she fought extradition for quite a while to um did not want to go to colorado um but eventually she pled guilty to an accessory after the fact Their daughter, so that would be Sherman and Carolyn's daughter, Ginger, who was also Carl Taylor's wife, who was 22, she testified um, on all three grand juries against them. Hmm. So, and then she would also serve time in both California and Colorado. Um, She actually had uh, her last child while she was serving time, and that baby was put up for adoption. Sherman um, was the first to be tried, and he was convicted of felony murder and kidnapping, and he was convicted on April 23rd, 1973. He stated that he was not in the car at the time of the murder. He only heard what he thought was her being strangled, and he didn't know what was going to
0: happen to her, and then he said he was disgusted by the whole thing. I don't know. You're strangling somebody, so... What do you think is going to happen?
1: Well, and what we know, which the jury, of course, would not have been told at that point, but it wasn't exactly the first one that he had taken part in, too, because he was up and taking part in Sherry's abduction and murder
0: in uh, Utah. And you can't be like, and we dropped her off. She was walking just fine. No. So, So he, in his defense, he
1: even goes forward and provides a, uh, taped phone call between him and Carl while he was serving time in the supermarket robberies in California. Um, he had called Carl and, um, confronted him on the phone about the murders. And he's, he's basically confronting him on the phone and saying, you know, you need to tell people that I didn't have anything to do with, um, with this and, um, you know kind of telling carl what carl needs to do about these allegations so um and that's his that's his evidence to say i didn't do it Mm -hmm. i didn't know anything about it but i'm having this phone call with you to tell you you need to clear up anything that's gone on here um the prosecutor although he did not believe that it was true said that it didn't even matter that he was part of the crime and that led to the death and that's all that mattered and actually that's very true in the state I think I'm in the most states but it's true in the state of Colorado if you're a party of some crime and that crime leads to murder then you're you wouldn't have mattered whether or not you strangled her or not however he also stated that he believed that Sherman had fired the two shots that... So the drinking in the bar would become a very important part of the trial because it was saying that there was a pause in the crime and that the jury could have decided um, because of that pause. So basically, they had a chance to change their mind. So it's like, um the difference between whether or not um it was like a passionate and like you go in you rob the store you kill somebody and it just kind of happens which I don't think necessarily just happens I mean you obviously chose to go in somewhere with a gun but um but the difference between that and you're committed like she's out in the car you had a chance to make a change um and so it would have been possible that Sherman would have gotten off on this if they had not stopped by the, at the bar or at least would have gotten a lighter sentence. Why? Because um because the way the laws are are written in Colorado if if he had, if they hadn't been sitting there in the bar together, kind of like taking this break, and then Carl had just gone off and killed her by himself, then the law would have looked at it as Sherman not necessarily being a active part of that crime, but because that's kind of how it all went down and they could prove that that's how it went down, then um, it's it's a bigger sentence. The maximum sentence in the state of Colorado uh, was 30 years for kidnapping and life for felony murder. So that's, it's just that whole thing where it like bumps it up to that felony murder part of it, as opposed to down to a lesser charge of murder. Murder is still murder, but it's, it's what they could be looking for in this, in the sentence. Um, So, So they're both in Colorado, um, both serving time in Colorado. Sherman Raymond McCrary uh, was 60. um, So Sherman Raymond McCrary, when he's 62 years old, he's an inmate at the Freeman Corrections Facility. Um, So he kind of spoke to the guards while they're making their rounds, kind of doing a little bit of small talk. And then when the guards came down hours later, they found him dead in his cell. Uh, He had left a suicide note stating, I am old and tired and tired of doing this time. This was kind of a coward's way out. Um, And so that was kind of his end. Carl um, was still serving time in Colorado in, um, in 2022. I haven't really looked him up since then, but he was eligible for parole at that point in time. Uh, so I don't think that he was granted parole, but, uh, haven't quite gone back and looked at that. Yeah. I haven't looked
0: at that either, but I do feel like somehow if he was, I do feel like it would have made news.
1: Yeah. Because I mean, I've, I've Googled his name enough. It just hasn't come up that he got Mm -hmm. out. Um, so Sherman's wife actually divorced him and, um, And then she and Ginger actually ended up living the rest of their lives together. Um, And so the children were pretty much given up into into foster care, given up for adoption. But then in July of 1973, Danny would actually go on trial for the Texas murder of Jenna McCoy. Even though Jenna and her husband Forrest were kidnapped and killed together, the district attorney's office only charged him with one murder so when i looked at this i was like oh that's kind of weird why did you only do it with one and i think the reason why they did this is if they got an acquittal they could have gone back and charged him with Mm -hmm. forest murder so um and then um so he he's, um, he claimed that his father and his brother-in-law were responsible for the murders, that he wasn't responsible at all. But at trial, it was an aunt of Jennifer, Jenna that testified that she recognized Danny as being a man she had seen in the f- store four days before the abduction, several times up until then. And so it was believed that he was uh, casing the place. So he was sentenced to life um, in prison for his part in the murder, and he died in 2007. Um, So the last part of this is kind of interesting. So there was a podcast that uh, years ago that actually did um, a whole podcast on the donut shop murders, and you can't actually listen to the podcast anymore um it's been taken down but for a long time on that podcast there was a discussion board about the murders and what actually happened with that is that the um the children who had been given up for adoption and then also the children of one of the victims made contact with each other And we're talking on there. Some of the children who had been given up for adoption were able to actually kind of communicate with their brothers and sisters who they hadn't been in communication with. But they were also communicating with one of the children who had lost her mother. And they really talked about how healing it was to actually have those conversations, to be able to talk to each other, you know, and to know what had happened. So I thought that was kind of interesting to see that um, happen. I've looked at those message boards, or at least copies of those message boards, because they've been taken down. Um, and it, so it was, it was kind of, kind of a neat, neat that happened. Um, the child of of the murder victim doesn't actually hold any um, ill will against any of the other, any of the kids, or anything like that. Um, so that is interesting, but I just realized though, as we finished recording, and so I'm just going to throw her in at the end that I actually skipped a victim. <laughs> so on October 20th, 1971, Susan Darlene Shaw, age 16, was working at the sweet cream donut shop in Mesquite, Texas. She disappeared and her body was found in a, uh, Creek North, a creek near the North shore of Lake Ray Hubbard four days later. So, um, so she's also one in Texas. Now, the last part of this is after the trials happened in these different states, Florida actually chose not to go forward with any uh, charges. Um, So did Utah chose not to go forward with any charges. And, um, so did Missouri. So at that point in time, they just, now my guess is that if Carl, who's 84 years old, actually does get paroled, that one of those states might actually come forward and say, we're going to, we're going to go ahead and charge him so that we can keep him in prison. Um, But Utah basically said, we're not going forward with the expense of a trial. (laughs) I kind of, Think that since Carolyn and Ginger were with the men at several of these different crimes, that um, these states could have gone after them as accomplices, also?
0: Thanks for joining us today. We always love to hear from our listeners. So please contact us with any questions that you might have. Um, You can reach us on our Facebook page, Bodies in the Bayou's. You can always email us at bodiesinbayou's at hotmail.com. And don't forget to listen to us wherever you stream your podcast.